Engaging Leader Podcast, episode 68. Leadership inspire trust, passion, and action? Welcome to the Engaging Leader Podcast with Jesse Leahy, consultant, writer, and speaker. Jesse has helped executives engage hundreds of thousands of people. Join us now for principles to communicate, engage, and lead with greater impact. Welcome to the show, Engagers. Is leadership dead? Well, Maybe if you're talking about a leadership that involves manipulating others for your own benefit. Instead, today we're going to be talking about how great leaders strive to influence others for their good. Our guest today is Jeremy Kubitschek. He is the founder of The Giant Companies. Among other lines of business, Giant operates the global leadership events Catalyst and The Leader Cast. Jeremy is the author of Leadership is Dead, How Influence is Reviving It. Jeremy, welcome to The Engaging Leader. Thank you, Jesse. So good to be with you. Jeremy, when you say leadership is dead and influence is replacing it, what's the difference between your definitions of leadership and influence? Well, I I actually believe that uh, it's not as much that influence is replacing it. Influence is a direct correlation to whether your leadership is dead or it's alive. So I, I believe that leadership is influence and influence is power. And it's based on how you use that power. And how people perceive that power, whether you empower or overpower people, uh, then your influence will rise and fall on that. So if you're an empowering leader and people want to follow you and you're a leader worth following, then you have high influence and your leadership is alive. Conversely, if you're not and you're overpowering and dominating people and they have to follow you, then you probably don't have much influence other than the, the authority that you have in your current job. And and your influence is weak, therefore your leadership is dead or dying. And that's the the premise of the book. So in the book, you contrast between two types of leaders, one being a dominator and one being a liberator. That's right. Yeah, I spent a lot of time, uh, when I was in my early 20s, I I lived in Russia. And so I I had the opportunity right after the fall of communism, um, actually, to see what 70 years of oppression did on people and did to people. And as far as the color I would, I would give, it would be the color gray. And it really, it was striking to see how people responded to their newfound freedom and what they did with it and how they, they kind of think about things in a more democratic government. And so I took that and just saying, you know, there's really this concept of domination and liberation. So I started playing with it in in the business world, and I realized that there's actually even I've even expanded it since. It says there's there's liberating leaders, which are people that have high support and high challenge, and they want to support people and challenge people at the same time. There's dominators who end up challenging people, but rarely supporting people. So they have high demands, and so everything they touch usually is red because it's there's blood in the water, or they're they're bullies, or they. Or, or they're just pressuring or pushing so much pressure on people that it makes, makes things bleed, if you will. And then there's protecting leaders who bring high support and low challenge. So the, the idea that I'm trying to convey is that a liberating leader uh, understands how to challenge and how to support at the same time so that their leadership style is one of, uh, again, people wanting to work for them because they know that they have the best uh, intentions for them. Can you give me an example of a leader that you would consider a liberating leader? Yeah, you mean an actual person's name? Right. 
Um, the, the, you know, the hard part of that uh, is that there are very few mm. um, who do it really well. And, that, and that's what I also try to bring out. I, you know, I made hard, big comments like leadership is dead or liberator dominator. The reality is that I'm a dominator sometimes. Uh, I might be a dominator at my home uh, on occasions where I might be a liberator at work. Uh, so the, the concept is who are the people that you know and I know that are humble, who are secure, and who are confident, and, and uh, who have the greater good in mind when they lead people versus their personal power. So those are liberators. The problem is most deliberators I know, uh, you would know uh, because they're, they're – and, and probably the same with in your case, Jesse. They're persons that you know that are liberators. Other people probably don't know because they're not seeking attention necessarily. So they're the everyday leaders that build confidence in other people and are so for them. So sometimes it's a coach. Sometimes that's um, a father or a um, a family member. Sometimes that's um, a mentor. Sometimes that's your boss. So, um, you know, for me, there was uh, people by the name of John Cragen, Kent Humphreys. Um, These are leaders that were in my life that probably not a lot of people know, but they had tremendous influence. Um, over me because I knew that they were completely for me, and but they challenged me to be the best I could possibly be. So they were both supporting and challenging, and they were serving and fighting. And I think that's what I love about the concept of a liberator, is that a liberator serves and fights uh, at the same time. It's interesting that you bring up the, the concept of power in there as as one of the attributes of a liberator, that you're more focused on the greater good of the team versus personal power. I recently wrote a a blog post called Influence 3.0, and it's talking about upgrading your leadership, your influence from Influence 1.0, which is more like the traditional manager, to Influence 2.0, which is like the traditional leader who is directing things. And basically, the power is in the leader. And in Influence 3.0, the the leader, if you will, recognizes that the power is in the team. And how do you engage that team and facilitate that team so that the team itself is is basically putting that power to make a difference? Absolutely. I, I think I think it's a you bring up a, a good point. Uh, you know, with power is interesting because I often ask people, how did it feel the first time that you had power over someone else in your job, whether it was your title? or your authority that you had, or, you know, what have you. And a lot of times, uh, people's response, you know, it felt great. And, and a lot of people covet power, if you will. But when you understand that leadership is actually responsibility, that to be a, a leader means that you're responsible for things. So the responsibility of a person uh, should lead them to holding power, again, for the benefit of, of everyone, not just for, for themselves. And uh, that's what I spend a lot of time talking about insecurity because all power usually does is it shows whether a leader is secure or insecure by the way that they handle it. And insecurity is where most drama comes from, and in the, especially in the corporate uh, you know, workforce or in just the marketplace itself. Yeah, you mentioned insecurity, which to me is so related to the concept of self-preservation, which you're one of the first people I've heard talk about the obstacle of self-preservation 
in a leader. And that's one of the actions in your model with the seven action for leaders to rise above and expand their impact. Uh, out of those seven actions, number four is break through your walls of self-preservation. Can you, first of all, explain why is self-preservation such an obstacle for true influence? Yeah, um, you know, first of all, self-preservation, let me define it, what it is. Um, again, it's rampant, and it comes from insecurity. It's basically the action of insecurity. It's the overprotection of the thing that you're afraid of losing. So self-preservation, it, it, it's... Uh, so if you're afraid of losing uh, your salary, um, or if you're afraid of losing your title or power, then you'll self-preserve, you'll overprotect. So the concept of overprotection, you know, protecting is not bad. Like no one wants to lose their job, no one wants to lose a car or house or those kind of things. But the overprotection actually creates a um, defensive mechanism inside us. Um, it was almost as if I went. I remember going uh, fishing in Tampa Bay. And I had a, a fishing guide with me, and, and we were we were fishing, and, and some buddies and I, and we caught this amberjack. And I'm about to pick it up, and he goes, "Whoa, whoa, 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 whoa!" And he grabs it. And he goes, "No, no, no, I'll handle it." He goes, uh, "You don't understand. Saltwater fish, uh, they like their defensive. They like to be defensive. And as soon as you touch the fish, these spikes popped out of the side of this fish. Mm. And it was like, are you kidding me? I had no idea." And, and basically, he said, yeah, they're just, they're self-preserving. And that was, the, that was kind of where this concept came from. Like, how interesting is it? So, when we overprotect the things we're afraid of losing, we do the same thing. The spikes come out. So, we began to defend and deflect, and we began to uh, take some of our energy. So, if we have 100% energy focused on our day job, if we start feeling pressure that there's people against us or or there's gossip around us, or we're being something's going to be taken away. We'll we'll uh, defer our energy from our day job, and we'll move over 40, 50, 60 percent to defending the things we're afraid of losing. So self-preservation creates a insecure person, and it creates uh, uh, defensive teams, and a lot of toxicity and drama happen because of this. So I always ask the question: Here's how. Here's how you know what what your self-preservation is, because we all have it, by the way. Um, I mean, right now, I could probably list two or three things that I was self-preserving. Some, you know, probably maybe at a lower level than in the past. Um, but the question would be, what are you trying to prove? Uh, and to whom? What are you afraid of losing? And what are you trying to hide? Mm. And, and when, you, when you really get to, to the depths of that with a leader, and they are actually honest with you about it, you'll find that uh, most of their problems um, are around the area of defending the, the answer to those. So um, let me give you a couple examples. I had a, a leader that used to work uh, with us, um, young guy, had a lot of, of potential, and he was so afraid of losing his job. This was during the recession. I think it's well, it still might be around, I know. But anyway, the, uh, the first wave of the re recession. And um, he, he basically was so afraid of losing his job, he came to me two weeks after Black Friday and he said, um, hey, Jeremy, you know, I really want to make sure that you know, we're good. I'm like, yeah, well, what do you mean? He goes, well, I want to make sure that financially that I'm still a vital part of the team and that I still have a job here. I'm like, yeah, just keep your head down. Let's, let's all focus and help each other. We've got to get through this. 
And then it was a few days later, some of the team members started coming to me with, man, I think, you know, there's a problem here with this guy. So we started talking about him and, well, he came back to me with a presentation and it was 10, it was a 10 page PowerPoint slide, nine pages were on himself and how he could make more money uh, over the next two or three years. And one page was on how the company would benefit if he did that. And I started, you know, asking him, like, do you really think this was a good idea, presenting this? <laughs> and so we, so we started getting into the, the conversation. And I said, look, I have no intent on letting anyone go. That's not, we've just kind of made it uh, our goal to make it through without any layoffs in this first wave of recession. And uh, I said, where is this fear coming from? Because this fear is, is insecurity is really causing problems. And he started sharing. He said, my, my dad lost his job when I was in high school, and it really affected us. And from that point forward, I told myself, I made a vow that I would never let that happen to my family. I've got two young kids, and I want to make sure that they you know, get set up and are good for, for life. Well, after that, it, it went downhill. He was so defensive on, on things that he basically ran himself off. The team couldn't work with him anymore. And it was just, it was, it was almost like, you're kidding me. This guy's fear, his overprotection of his job and salary that was never under harm, um, actually, he ended up losing it. So the overprotecting of what you're afraid of losing actually causes you to lose it sooner. It's a self fulfilling prophecy. Wow. Now, I listened to the audiobook version of your book, Leadership is Dead, and one of the interesting extras on there was an, uh, an interview you gave, and you brought up one facet of self-preservation that totally caught me by surprise. I think the question was, how does a person become a workaholic, or how does self-preservation relate to workaholism? And do you remember how you answered that? Well, it was, it was a couple of years ago, so I can, get, <laughs> I can tell you what I think the answer is. Basically, it's this idea of proving themselves. And the whole, I had worked with a number of guys who were so fixated on how much time, who came in the office when. Yeah, so, yeah, I got in at six. It was almost a badge of honor to see how early and how late they could stay, how early they could come and how late they could stay. And I remember a couple of years later, uh, um, my boss who basically said, you know, one thing I, I need to tell you that I really appreciate, you work really smart. You're a really hard worker, but you're not trying to prove yourself like the other guys. <laughs> and I can mm -hmm. remember thinking, well, that's what, what, what they saw as well. So the whole, the whole concept of workaholism is actually a proving grounds uh, so whether it's uh, competency or character or something, trying to prove something to someone else. And what it really does is it does damage uh, to yourself, but it also does damage to families. And it doesn't accomplish a, a whole lot. And uh, so I just, over time, I've just really fixated on what do I get done? I work very hard, but it's not about, it's not about time in the office to prove myself to someone else. Yeah, that just, it, it caught me by surprise because I thought, first of all, the, the concept of self-preservation obviously runs contrary to leadership. You can think of people who would have been a great leader except that they were worried about getting passed over by some of their own people, so they, they held them back, or some of the example that you shared. But then you think of that workaholic and you think, 
wow, they, maybe that, that person is, is doing a lot of, uh, they're, they're doing that because they really love the work or they're so passionate about what they're doing. And, and I, I guess looking in my own life, I've had a lot of periods like that, that I, and I thought that's why I was acting like a workaholic. But I think you're absolutely right. I was really just proving that I was worthy to be in that role or maybe to be in the next role for the promotion that I was looking for. Yeah, and, and it's based on cultures. You know, there's some cultures that if if their boss is insecure, then he creates an insecure culture and based on workaholism. So you you do what what that leader, you know, you mimic the leader. And we just have gotten to the point of saying, you know, there are certain things you mimic and certain things you don't mimic. But the most confident leaders, the most secure leaders are the best team members. And usually the best team members and the best employees, usually, uh, they can make it through any culture. They basically rise to the occasion and everyone wants them on their team. And uh, I know a guy who is really devout in the concept of just cutting it off, like, hey, I'm done. I'll see you tomorrow. But he's unbelievably productive. So because he's so productive, everyone's like, okay. And then they stay two more hours to try to prove themselves to everyone else. (laughs) And so it's just funny. Jeremy, let me ask you a question that's come in from our community. Uh, Stanley asks, should I completely say no to self-preservation? Or is there a risk of ignoring my limits and burning out or sacrificing too much? Uh, You know, the reality is that we all have self-preservation issues, so we can't say no to it. It's just reality. What I'm actually trying to do is um, I'm trying to get people to know themselves. So when if you and I, if we all know ourselves, we can lead ourselves. But until we know ourselves, we don't know our tendencies, then we can't lead ourselves out of it. So it's the process of self-awareness. So what I'm trying to bring up is to say, why do you have issues with another person? Well, first, look at yourself. Are you trying to prove something did, and, and they didn't sign off on you know, your proving grounds? Did, are you trying to hide yourself or hide something from someone? Are you trying to, uh, you know, afraid of losing something? So the, the concept of self-preservation is simply a mirror. And when you look in the mirror, then you can, you can deal with yourself. Um, so again, uh, it, none of us want to lose our jobs or our salaries or any of those things. I mean, that's just... So there's natural self-preservation or there's natural preservation that's not bad in and of itself. It's what I'm saying. It's, it's the overprotection mm-hmm. of what you're afraid of losing. The overprotection is where you start changing your demeanor. You start smelling different to people and they start noticing and they start moving away from you, not towards you. That's when a defensive mechanism and defensive uh, strategy actually ultimately leads to a siege, which leads to you losing. And that's what I'm trying to bring out in the concept of self-preservation. Mm-hmm. So break through your walls of self-preservation. That is action four in your true influence model, a seven action process for expanding your impact. Let's talk about num- action number five, pursue relationships before opportunity. What, what do you mean by that? You know, I grew up, I'm, I'm not this old, I grew up watching reruns of Andy Griffith and Andy Griffith's show. Uh, not the originals, but, um, <laughs> but you know, there are certain, there are certain people that, uh, like Andy Griffith, that had established this Mayberry, this town where, where people trusted him. Everyone knew that he was for them. And ultimately, 
because he was so f- much for the greater good, he had so much influence in the community. Well, I know it was kind of an idealistic view, and there was lots of slapstick comedy around it, but I still believe the th- same thing is true. Relationship before opportunity means that I seek the relationship and your best before an opportunity exists. So, Jesse, if you and I are building a relationship from a business perspective, then I want to serve you and help you accomplish what you want to accomplish and need to accomplish for your best. Now, if an opportunity comes from that, great. But if I am first seeking an opportunity in the form of relationship, you'll smell through that all the time. We just Mm -hmm. do. We naturally smell like there's something not genuine here. So inauthentic people uh, diminish their influence. Um, People who are opportunistic before a relationship or opportunistic in general diminish their influence. So their leadership dies. So the, the, the whole idea of this would simply be, look, I'm so secure and confident in who I am because I've been working on myself for 20 years. I'm self-aware. I understand this is my tendency. I understand I can deal with it. And, and I'm, I'm settled and I'm good. How can I serve you? And if I can really help someone and really bring value into it and they know it, then that's when relationships are formed. So I created this concept called the influence model, and it's in the book, and it basically is a visual to describe exactly where you are with a person. So I can, I can help someone um, understand and, and really diagram where their influence is or isn't with another person. But it starts, and the basics, everyone knows this, but character and competence. This is kind of one-on-one stuff. Character and competence is people first want to know, are you worthy of trust? And then second, um, are you competent or are you relevant to me? Well, in, in most business cultures, most people don't leave money on the table. So they'll go, oh, great. You like, you like me and you liked our products. That sounds like a transaction. Let's go. And we'll <laughs> sign them up. And then, and then we go back home and we ring the bell and, and we're almost using it as proving grounds to go, look how good of a salesperson I am, or look how good I am. We got a new client, high five, high five, which is not bad. Mm-hmm. But when the, if the focus is on the transaction and then going on to the next transaction, then we basically have left influence on the table. We didn't lose money on the, leave money on the table. We left influence on the table because we weren't willing to go jump through our own self-preservation. So what we teach people at Giant is team. I want you to serve the other person as if it was yourself. How do you help them? So uh, to to help them really means that we're going to be an influence and an impact in their life, which means that I need to be significant and memorable. And if I'm significant and memorable to them, then a lot can take place. A lot can happen. So if I'm significant and memorable in your life, for instance, Jesse, well, one, you're not going to forget about me. Uh, Two, you're going to give me the opportunity to be a friend. Uh, and three, there's going to be long-term opportunities we can work on together, not just the short-term transaction. So what I've found is that most people, uh, and, and this comes from Wall Street, I mean, just the desire for short-term quarterly gains affects a short-term transaction mentality that over the course of time creates cultures that actually harm the original intent and the original goal versus the concept of its relationship before opportunity. The long-term relationships that are built create long-term longevity, not short-term transactions that lead to short-term relationships. 
Does that make sense? It does. And so sometimes that involves putting the other person's needs above your own. Exactly. And I, I, I preach that all the time. It, guys, it, if you can literally, I mean, it, it is that. I mean, ultimately, if we have products or services that we're selling, um, then it, it, at the very core, we've developed products and services to help other people. Uh, I, I had this guy, I had this salesperson come to me once. I, I think it was a phone call. And he and I got roped into it somehow. But at the at the end of it, he goes, "Hey, listen, man, let me be honest. If you help me do this, I get to go on a trip." And <laughs> and I said, "So if I buy your product, you get to go on a cruise." That's right, man. And you know, I need it so bad. I need it so bad. I said, "Well, do you know what I need?" And he goes, "No, I don't." I go, "Exactly. <laughs> I'm sorry, I can't help you go on this trip." And it, the point was, you know, he didn't know what I needed and he didn't care. And I think that's really what it is. People, we all want to know when we're talking to someone, are you for me? Are you against me? Or are you for yourself? And when we answer that question, it's settled. If I think that you're for you, yourself, Jesse, and, and you didn't share what you shared with me earlier, just about what you're trying to accomplish and the, the good that you're trying to do. If I thought you were just for yourself, then I wouldn't do this call. I wouldn't be on the interview. But when, when you're so for other people and other people know it, um, it, it people want to be around you. People want to want to be a part of, of what, what you have going on. You know, when I read that in the book, it first struck me as too simplistic that people are walking around th- and when they interact with people, they're thinking, is this person for me, against me, or for themselves alone? And I thought well, I wanted to I wanted to push back on you and say, no. That, that what about what about uh, they they see this as a leader who is for the team as a whole, and maybe that's true on some level. But it does seem like just in your basic instinct, when you're interacting with somebody, especially somebody who is a leader who's influencing, you're in your in your gut, you're going to have this visceral reaction that, that is immediately assessing is this person for me or against me or are they just self-focused absolutely i mean it it does i've interviewed hundreds of people on it just asking me and what i'll do is i'll have them create and this is something you can do it a great exercise you take a piece of paper um put yourself in the middle in a circle and draw five to six circles around you of everyone in your world um co-workers boss spouse um, you know, other people in the community, just put random people in there and then ask the question, are they for me? Are they against me? Or are they for themselves? And you can color code it or you can just put it. Out. And it's amazing. You say, well, I know for sure that two people are for me. These six, uh, they're not against me, but they're not for me. They're for themselves. And you can then go, well, no wonder our relationship is like this. And then you reverse it. Do they think I'm for them, against them, or for myself? And it's a great exercise, just uh, really more another chance for self-awareness. The majority of us spend the majority of our time and our days fixated on ourselves. And it takes a secure person, a confident person, uh, to to really um, change that. And ultimately, and I've been teaching this here of late, as I've been writing on my blog, um, that leadership is about dying. And I actually do believe that to be a great leader, you have to die. 
And, and in essence, that's what I'm also writing about in Leadership is Dead. Um, I had a, a client assassinated in chapter one. I talk about that, um, that I saw and, and was there. And I, and I had a death encounter myself and in chapter two. And I think what, what I've realized is that leadership and to be a great leader means that you do die to certain things so that you can be uh, leading something bigger than yourself for the greater good of everybody. Yeah, I am curious that your story of your near-death experience, this many years later, do you find that it still impacts you? Like, for example, let's just say, take a, a major event like September 11, and the, I saw many people make changes in their lives or in their attitudes or their perspective in the days and weeks and months following that. But now, more than 10 years later, I don't see that anymore. But do you still see that that event has had an, an impact on you? Yeah, just, uh, yes, short answer. You know, I've watched documentaries of World War II uh, soldiers, and some for the first time are sharing things, you know, 50 years later, 60 years later, for the first time. Um, There's certain things that do mark you. And most of them, while horrific, can be very beneficial. So for my accident and, and a hurricane hit by a drunk driver in Mexico, this sounds ludicrous, but I would do it again. <laughs> now, I, I mean, I wouldn't want to, but I, but knowing all the fruit that's come from it, um, the thousands of people who have been impacted by that story or by the experience once they've heard me speak about it, um, my parents, my family, I would do it again. It, it gave me the perspective that I needed uh, to help shape a business uh, because if you're going to shape a business – that's trying to change the leadership culture of the world from a pride-based leadership to humility-based leadership, then you better have a, a story. <laughs> you better have a, uh, something that will, that will keep you grounded as you do that. And that's, that's what's happened to me. So I've, I've been able to um, use it maybe as a, as a form of motivation for me to realize I'm not as good as I think I am. Um, I could go in any minute and I'm, confident and secure in, in who God's made me to be and who I am as a person. So I, I've become confident in those things, hopefully not overly confident, hopefully not, not arrogant, but um, simply maybe secure. And so that allows me to do what I do on a daily basis. Your action six in, in the last one that we'll have time to talk about today is, is give yourself away. And it, it seems like that really does require a security and maybe the knowledge that you can you can die, you can give an awful lot away, and yet uh, there's still an, an abundance that um, you're not going to necessarily give yourself away. Yeah, I have. I get the most pushback I get is from that comment because I get all the literalists who will go, <laughs> "Give yourself away? What do you mean? Well, how do you? I mean, if you did that, you wouldn't have anything to give." and uh, my the premise is this whole it's abundant versus scarcity yeah but it's it's a it's an idea that I've found um, that when you give yourself away uh, in relationship before opportunity and really serve people there's a goodwill that comes you get far more back than you could ever imagine and um, what I'm trying to say is if you have uh, um, giving yourself away it becomes a lifestyle. 
because you're not measuring how much you can gain. You're measuring, you're, you're basically just consistently giving. And so today I spent a couple hours with a guy just giving some feedback. I've sent a, a letter to a person that I think needed encouragement. I helped another person through a business issue. I'm, I'm, in, I'm in London right now, so I'm five hours ahead of you guys. So I've, I've been going at it a little bit longer. And so living here in London, a lot of people haven't been used to that level because they've all been, so what do I owe? I'm like, you don't owe a thing. I'm serving you. Hmm. I'm simply giving myself away. And now there's certain things that, you know, yeah, we charge for and we have um, events and we have products and programs, but it becomes a mindset when you can give yourself away and again, and secure to do that, then, then you really uh, create a goodwill that benefits you far more than you can ever imagine. And that's not why you do it. It's just, it's just the reality though. Jeremy, I want to ask you about uh, more about where people can find out about you and LeaderCast and your other events and resources. But uh, I have got one more question that came in from our community. Cindy asks, she has a kind of a short question here. Is this a book by an extrovert for extroverts? And I think she's getting across, you know, it's this <laughs> sense you're talking about giving away and, and don't self-preserve and so forth. Um, how do you respond to that potential criticism? Now, extroverts and introverts, basically, what extroversion and introversion is basically how you recharge. It has nothing to do with how you lead. Mm. I mean, it does, but it, it, extroverts recharge by being around other people. Introverts recharge by being alone. So my questions are, sometimes introverts, um, and especially introvert thinkers, spend so much time in their minds and if they would uh, express themselves a little bit more or, show, or give a little bit more away of what they're thinking, they'll see the benefits that they're really wanting. So it, it really doesn't. The truth is I am an extrovert, but I can tell you there's been after, again, a year and a half since this has come out and it's the Wall Street Journal reports and all these different things it's hit. I've had so many conversations with people who are, are extroverts or introverts. It's basically a lifestyle. And the lifestyle is this. Would you choose to um, know your tendencies and know yourself and deal with yourself? Would you choose to be for people more than for yourself? And would you choose to really um, use your influence and your power to empower instead of overpower? And that can happen by introverts and extroverts. And that really makes a person somebody that people want to follow. I mean, you want to have a leader that is for you and that is not self-preserving, but instead is willing to give freely, get, basically give, give himself away for the good of me and for the good of the, the team and the purpose that we're going after. That's right. Well, let's talk a little bit about LeaderCast. This is a, a one-day event that is it's held in Atlanta. It's broadcast live to over 100,000 leaders around the globe. Your next event is going to be May 9th, 2014, right? That's right. Yep. So it's, uh, it's amazing. We'll, we'll have um, speakers. Um, the, the lineup is amazing. Uh, Jack Welch, again, we've got uh, Malcolm Gladwell, uh, Desmond Tutu, Laura Bush. Um, so it's a, it's a great lineup. But what it's really meant to, to be is it's really meant for community leaders uh, like yourself to be able to leverage it and host it um, and bring people to a leader cast Detroit or a leader cast Lansing or leader cast wherever. And um, so we've got a licensing program that we do with people so they can bring it to their community or to their company. So we have a lot of companies like Apple, 
has brought it in. Papa John's, um, these companies will bring it in uh, Delta inside their company and have it for their employees. So it's a, it's a tool. It's a spark. That's at leadercast.com. You can find out more information. Or um, simply, if you want to know more about Giant, it's giantworldwide.com and giantimpact.com. And then my blog is jeremykubachak.com, which is free content, talking about these subjects on a daily basis, So, um, which is ne- never easy to spell, but uh, usually people can find it. <laughs> and you're on Twitter as well, at Jeremy Kubachek. Yes. And so uh, people can follow you there. Well, the book is Leadership is Dead, How Influence is Reviving It, and it's also available in paperback form as Making Your Leadership Come Alive. Jeremy Kubitschek, thank you for joining us on Engaging Leader. Thanks, Jesse. appreciate all you're doing. All right, Engagers, that wraps up this episode. We'll provide the information and links that Jeremy mentioned in our show notes. You can find the show notes at engagingleader.com forward slash 68 as in episode 68. And while you're on the show notes page, I encourage you to provide your thoughts or questions in the comments section. Engaging Leader is a production of Aspendale Communications, a consulting firm where my colleagues and I partner with mid-size and large employers to attract top talent, engage employees, and deliver superior business results. Find out more at AspendaleCommunications.com. Our thanks to Joe Sherwood, our producer, Tom Hitchcock, our programming director, James Marler, our sound engineer, Cliff Ravenscraft, our podcasting advisor, Dustin Hartzler, our website engineer, J.J. Leahy, our video and web intern, Rick Tarrant, our announcer, and Christopher Seal, who composed our theme music. Until next time, remember, whether you realize it or not, you are always communicating and leading. Let's make the most of our opportunities to engage the people we care about. 